a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. Welcome back to the JMAC News Show. Glad to have you with us today. I'm Jason Perry, the director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. I'm filling in for Jay. As you may have heard in the last couple segments, Jay will be back at 2.50 today to talk with uh, his listeners, to discuss his absence. I recommend you stay tuned. But first, we get to hear from a couple great reporters. First, uh, Lisa Riley Roche, political reporter uh, with the Deseret News, is staying with us. Thank you for that, Lisa. Of course. But also joining us is Katie McKellar, the local government reporter for the Deseret News. Katie, you've been busy the last few days. Yes, I have. Yes, I guess always. But I want to talk about some stories that you are working on right now for the Salt Lake City Mayor's Race. Yes. I know it's summer. People want to be on vacation and doing other things, but we've got to show up and vote. Let's talk about that for just a moment. Uh Tell, tell us, we have eight candidates that are currently vying for this position. I've, I've enjoyed reading your stories about this. When you when you have the, this many candidates going forward, how do any of them uh, try to differentiate themselves, at least what you have seen so far? Right. It's tough. Eight candidates, crowded race. A lot of the issues, a lot of the candidates are very similar on their stances on issues like um, the inland port and environment and air quality. Those are the kind of like the highlighted issues in this race so far. Um, inland port being the biggest hot button issue. Um, honestly, because there are so many, um, people really just need to be paying attention and they need to be reading reports. They honestly, if they can interact personally with, with these candidates, do that. Go to their candidate website pages. They're very similar. It's just a tough race because there's so many. Yeah, that's true. And, and their positions on issues seem to be uh, exceptionally close to each other. They are, yeah. And um, there are some differences. Um, some of the, uh, the likely front runners, like Escamilla and Jim DeBacchus, I mean, they, they kind of um, stand more on, they emphasize partnering with state leaders, having a good relationship with the state. Um, others, like David Garbett, kind of has taken a stronger stance against the inland port. Um, others saying we'd only support a zero emissions port. Um, it's just kind of across the gamut. And some of the lesser known candidates, like maybe Rainer Huck or Richard Goldberger, don't support the lawsuit at all. And, and Rainer Huck says, I would, I think the, can't, the port should uh, be in state control. And Goldberger says, uh, we shouldn't even have that. We should have some kind of hub instead. So it's just across the board. Uh, one of the interesting things that I've been hearing from the candidates is sort of this emerging trend, and it is this. You understand our policies, or at least you think we're all very similar, but it comes down to execution. 
Right. H- how are we going to do in this role? So I, I, that's really what I'm starting to see. And, and how are they starting to position themselves as you talk to each one of these candidates? How are they starting to position themselves? I mean, some of the things, uh, what's really telling is um, campaign finance and uh, who's able to, to kind of on the ground go door to door or raise a lot of money. There's um, the biggest uh, fundraiser there is Abara, David Abara. He's really um, brought in a lot more cash than a lot of the candidates since the campaigning has started. Um, but others like Escamilla, that she, uh, or sorry, uh, Jim DeBacchus has kind of got the most individual donations. So um, it's just kind of on the ground and what they're able to accomplish there is, is what will turn up uh, at the polls or at the, um, the August primary. That's true. It's been interesting to see everyone kind of just showing who has the biggest pile of cash as evidence of, of support. But but Lisa, uh, if, if you don't mind, one thing that you and I have talked about in the past with these elections is how important endorsements are. You know, s- sometimes elected officials think, uh, I'm just going to shake enough hands. But at some point, what you need is uh, a, a popular figure to say, I support this person. They can do it. Uh, t- talk about that for just a minute, how important it is and why s- these candidates are starting to get those endorsements. Well, well, clearly, if you like one politician and that politician tells you, hey, look over at this person for this this office. I, I like them. I think they'll do a good job. That's going to carry some weight with you as a voter. So I, I, I think that that uh, will, will certainly be important in this race, where, as, as Katie has said, the candidates are, are very close. Uh, you know, Salt Lake typically, Salt Lake City typically sees itself as the state's liberal enclave, right? We look for the most liberal candidates to represent a point of view that we don't see much of outside of uh, city limits. So I, I found... Uh, just uh, anecdotally, uh, my neighborhood, the Avenues, uh, typically uh, elects the most liberal candidates to uh, to the state legislature, to to uh, city and county council, and uh, certainly for mayor. But I've noticed just driving around that there are lots of different candidate signs that no one has emerged as that liberal front runner uh, that uh, everyone will band uh, behind. And I, and I think you have people like uh, like Escamilla and Debacus that have pretty extensive state legislative experience and more name recognition. Exactly known for, as, as you were saying earlier, execution will be a big part of that. And they have a record of getting bills passed, mm-hmm. of getting attention paid to issues, and so. I would have expected maybe to see a little more of them, but a number of other candidates are also uh, uh, getting attention up in, up at least up in my neighborhood. And they have name recognition in neighborhoods like Aaron, City Councilwoman Erin Mendenhall and former City Councilman Stan Penfold. They're known in their neighborhoods. Um, so something to keep in mind. Yeah, there. It's, it's true. And it's interesting what you say about kind of where they are on the spectrum as to how they do. But Katie, I'm curious with the people you're interviewing, whether or not that is, that is where Salt Lake City voters are. Are they still looking for the most liberal? Are they looking for the person with the highest name ID? And while you're answering that, why, are people, why do people care about who the mayor of Salt Lake City is anyway? 
They right. do. I just wonder what you have to say about <laughs> well, it's that. A, it's a big deal. I mean, it's the capital city of the, of the state, and um, relationships with state leaders and county leaders are really important here um, at the capital city. Um, and, so, and it's tough to say um, which way people are leaning and, and who they'll throw their support behind. But, I mean, Alliance for a Better Utah, they, they did a poll um, that showed um, – Maybe that likely front runner is Debacus. This was again a poll back in June. Mm-hmm. Things can change quickly, but um, but margin of error was really narrow on other candidates, so it's hard to say who else could be a likely front runner. But um, I mean, Debacus has been well known as a um, LGBT advocate. He's he's long been that, and we saw Mayor Biskupski, um, openly gay, get elected in 2015. That obviously it's an important vote in Salt Lake City. So. Um, the LGBT support. So maybe seeing um, that support come out in this election, we might, we might see that again. Mm-hmm. Appreciate that. I want to go back to a couple of things you just discussed. Uh, we, we had some a lot of people now texting in on the Utah Community Credit Union text line right now, really asking about the point you made. We don't need to get into any of the stuff that just happened on Inland Port over the last couple of days, but our listeners are wondering what kind of impact uh, will that issue have on the next mayor uh, for Salt Lake City? Well, I think it's going to have a huge impact on the mayor and, and this race leading up to the primary and into the general election. It's the the most hot-button issue right now. Um, and so I'm sure voters are going to be paying attention uh, to which like the stances each candidate have against the, on the inland port, whether they support it or not, uh, what kind of inland port they support at all, if 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 any, and so people will really be paying attention to that. Uh-huh. Uh, Lisa, I want to hear about uh, your get your thoughts on what happens uh, after this primary on August thirteenth. All right, so you have really oftentimes you have two big races. You have your positioning as you're trying to get to the primary, and you have how the race changes after. Describe what you think is going to happen after we get those two final candidates. Well, remember, this this is an open seat. Uh, the incumbent, uh, Jackie Viskupski, chose not to, to run. So you have a, a lot of, uh, uh, of people coming forward to get in the race, maybe that might not have done it otherwise, uh, not might not have run against an incumbent. But... After a primary, what what you see is is kind of a, a coalescing of uh, the remaining candidates behind one or the other, and that that may go a long way. Going back to what you were asking about endorsements, that may go a long way to to deciding who's ultimately going to win in in November. Uh, whoever ends up maybe getting the most endorsements from the people that trail a little right. further down the list, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this really great analysis. We're going to know those two candidates very soon. I know we'll be talking to both of you again about that. So thank you for your your great insights today. We appreciate that. Well, I'm Jason Perry, filling in on the JMAC News Show today. Glad to have you with us. Uh, Remember, JMAC will be on later at 2.50 today. Our next segment, you won't want to miss either. We'll get to hear from Natalie Gochner with the Gardner Policy Institute. What's happening in the state of Utah? Our demographics and, of course, that census question. Please come back. JMAC. What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com.